Hello, everyone at home, and welcome to this, the final episode, episode 13 of Here's the Thing, 8-Minute Movies. I'm I'm devastated, I'm heartbroken, but we've come so far. I'm so proud of you, Peter, my son. Uh, I'm a bit creeped out. No, this is how you learn. This is how you learn that you're my son. Um, I'm shocked at this um, revelation, this 13th episode revelation. I mean, don't dwell on the fact that you're older than I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's going to be corrected in a retcon, I guess. Mm. So, wow, the last episode. Um, I am Kieran. And I am Peter. And together, we are a podcast. Yes. Um, wow, I can't believe we've reached the end. Like, it's so rare for us to ever finish something. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was that. There was that game that we talked about last time, which we kind of finished after nine years. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And um, there's that other podcast that we really need to finish sometime. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that one. We yeah. had a we had another podcast concept which we started and then never got around to finishing. It turns out recording podcasts is hard if someone hasn't locked you into your house. Um. <laughs> yeah, but no, we actually st- stuck to this one, and we've done it within what I would call a reasonable time frame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, I worked it out the other day. It's basically one episode a week. We could have been doing them live, but um, I was too scared. I'm a coward, Peter, and I apologize to you for that. Well, as you say, we've got form in not finishing things. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you doing... On this, the last day I will ever speak to you. That's not true. I don't want to. <laughs> after, the, after the, we finish recording this podcast, uh, some, a device in your house will go off. Well, um, it's not been long um, since we last recorded one of these and you're asking that's, how I am. That's true. Was it yesterday? Um, no. Uh, the day, the day the before, day before I think, yesterday. yeah. Uh, but the less said about the last 48 hours the better i think <laughs> yeah let's uh, actually let's let's not move on um uh, hang on before that i will say that in the last 48 hours uh, one one good thing that i did was uh, play most of the way through a video game um Ooh, that's rare and uh, <laughs> well it, it's extremely common when you want to drown yourself in something to to forget <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, tell me about it. I played about 50 rounds of Among Us last night. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I played a game called Paradise Killer. Um, it is a a murder mystery game in which you play a character whose name is uh, Lady Love Dies. That That's the name <laughs> of the character. That's great. <laughs> and you exist in this kind of... <laughs> It's unclear that this kind of constructed dimension, I guess, this island, which is built on this kind of uh, strange religious concept of uh, uh, of wor- worshiping these strange gods, um, and you're trying to build the perfect island. This is the uh, the, the uh, and the one that you're on is the twenty fourth attempt, and you were exiled. Uh, several islands ago for something that you did that's complicated and not worth explaining here um but uh, there's been a very bad murder that's happened 
just before you... another murder. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, just before you're supposed to, they're supposed to shuffle off to the next island because this one's gone a bit wrong. There was a very bad murder, and that needs resolving before you can all go off to the next island. Uh, and so you are given this kind of open world island to go around, explore, investigate as you will, talk to people, collect clues, uh, and then. At the end, you pres- you can accuse anyone of the crime and present whatever evidence you found for that, and it ends depending on how well you did at investigating the crime. It's a very strange world, very unique. Uh, it's got cool music, cool kind of quasi-80s aesthetic to it. Um, it's very interesting, uh, and I recommend it if you like a murder mystery game. Oh yeah, no. Um, I wasn't that taken with the name, um, but like I hadn't really looked into it or anything. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, I've been seeing you play it on Discord for like two days, but um, I yeah, your description makes it sound really good. I'm definitely going to have to add that to the ever growing list of games that I've never got time to play. Yeah, I played it um more or less in one sitting except that sometimes i had to eat sleep and record <laughs> this podcast um I, so um, when, when i was not doing those three things i was playing this game it had me it really had my attention i'm gonna add it after that other game that you played um something of the sea song of the sea call of the sea yeah it's call so of the sea i would have got there eventually yeah so i mean You'll probably be able to get through those uh, over this break if you like, because um, you'd be surprised how much lying down on the floor and screaming while having a tantrum I'm planning to do over the next seven to ten days. So <laughs> I'll see if I can work it in around that. Fair, but they are both relatively quick plays. I'd say mm. Call of the Sea takes about six hours, uh, and uh, this one took me about somewhere between 10 and 12 hours to to get through and i i really enjoyed it it's instantly one of my favorite ones of the year yeah that's good actually because um as a depressed person with little time i i am on the lookout for shorter games (laughs) at the moment I, i know well i've got a strong suspicion that santa might be bringing me um assassin's creed valhalla for christmas and while i'm really looking forward to it um, I think it's like 7,000 hours long. They usually are. Yeah, those tend to be a bit more of an endeavor to get through. I'm I'm trying to uh, squeeze in some shorter games, but I just embarked on quite a long game. So mm. uh, who knows? Ask me how I'm doing, you selfish shit. How are you doing? I was going to say, you know, all the horrible stuff that's happened in the last 24 hours excluded, I'm doing quite well mm. because... Um, while I was researching this last final podcast episode, I found a special 20-minute promotional cut of The Thing, which I've never seen before. It's the whole movie, but in 20 minutes. So basically all the character development and stuff is trimmed out in favor of just getting to the action in every scene. Oh, we could have saved so much time if we'd yeah. done our eight-minute movies to that. Yeah, shit. That would have been two two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> What I found really interesting about it is it actually has shots in it which aren't in the theatrical cut of the film. And it's always delightful to find something new. Mm. Um, They've got three shots which aren't used in the final film. Uh, Palmer and Childs looking for Fuchs and arguing about not standing behind each other while they're walking down a corridor. (laughs) Do you remember we spoke about the lights out sequence where the lights go out in the lab and then 
you know, there's a weird sort of cut and McCready's like, some time has passed. Um, They actually have shots from that. So the whole sequence must have been filmed, focusing on the other people like Nulls and Windows. That's interesting, because presumably if you wanted to, you could then cut those deleted scenes back into the main film. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting idea. Certainly, I don't know if they exist anymore in like the quality you'd require them to. I mean, the the thing is 40 years old in two years. So mm. I really would like a really fancy remaster with, mm. you know, the option to put all these deleted scenes back in. I don't know. What's also included in it is a, uh, a shot of McCready's shack with the roof torn away and the snow on everything, which gets entirely removed from the theatrical cut. We had um, McCready and Knowles going up to the shack and then coming back like, mm, everything's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. We never really understood why the light was on there. Mm. Presumably all of those were cut for pacing or story reasons. But it includes different soundtrack, a different shot of Gary being dragged away where he's twitching, which is really kind of gross. I don't don't know if I like that one. Uh, When you say a different soundtrack, do you mean an entirely different soundtrack? Like just a completely... No, it's it's the um, Morricone score, but there are some other... Well, you know, we spoke about it earlier. He prepared a full score for the film and they didn't use a lot of the tracks. Right. So some of those have been used in it. So it's just interesting to hear, really. Right. It's just exciting to find something new, I guess, about a film that's almost 40 years old. And you really should check it out if you can. It's on YouTube. It's the promotional cut. Nice. Mm. So now it is time to introduce the concept. Peter, it's your turn. I believe it's your turn. I know. I I, I know. I thought I was going to get away with it this time, but, but it's not. It's my turn. And do you know what? Mm-hmm. Do you know what? We're not introducing the concept. If you are starting a 13-episode podcast in episode 13, why are you doing that? Why Why are you like this? Go to the first episode. Do it now. Stop listening to episode 13 as the first episode. Go to episode one and listen to that one in order, okay? That's, we, that's, that's introducing the concept to you. We've introduced the concept every time. Every so time. Far, uh, and I don't want to get rid of this fine tradition uh, now. Uh, I think you should at least do it in a half-assed way like I did last time. Do you know, I knew that you wouldn't let me get away with not introducing the concept. So what I've done for you mm-hmm. is I have prepared an introduction of the concept in the form of a haiku. Okay. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. Two men watch the thing. Catch each other out with Bell. Painfully detailed. That's more or less it. Yeah. <laughs> um. I was well I'm quite I'm quite proud of that. That's the most creative thing I've done in about 13 months. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> you, you should be. I'll, I'll edit a clap track in there or something. Mm. So let's not talk about the thing. We're, we're keeping this one short today. Mm. You, can't, you can't ask me what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I, I was just thinking, actually, that we'd already sort of not talked about the thing by talking about that promotional cup. Yeah, it's found. exciting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but what have you got that's new for me? Really, if I'd found the promotional cut after I'd prepared this section of the podcast, I would have just cut it in here and done less work overall. I wanted to talk to you about the Blumhouse production, the third adaptation of Who Goes There, the new version of the film. Right. But there isn't that much to say about it at this point. I see. I was hoping it would have been a bit more definite now, but obviously this hell year has made it very difficult for any production to really get going. Yeah. All we really know at the moment is that it was greenlit off the back of the success of the Frozen Hell Kickstarter, which I think was trying to raise like $100,000 and end up raising millions. Um, mm. And it's going to be following that more closely than either The Thing or The Thing from Another World. 
but effectively to most audiences is going to seem like a reboot of the thing. Right. Alan Donners was attached as executive producer, but unfortunately he passed away in July from viral meningitis. So that's a bit of a setback, obviously. That is a setback, yes. Uh, John Carpenter said in August, I'm involved with that maybe down the road. So that's sort of promising, I guess. That's a bit non-committal, but um, I don't know. Well, that's that's where we're at at this point. Uh, there's definitely something happening because some people have been paid already, but um, we just have to wait and see. How excited are you about this new thing? I would say I am 7 out of 10 excited right, because okay. I got very excited for the 2011 film and that was a bit of a letdown. Mm. And no disrespect intended, obviously, to all the people who worked on it. Um, Christ, you could do four or five podcasts on the storied history of that film. <laughs> and I think the thing as it is, is condensed into a better story than who goes there. The 1982 film takes all the best aspects of the short story and amplifies them. Mm. And Frozen Hell, while it's a really interesting thing to see a novel-length version of the original The Thing short story, Who Goes There, what it adds really is fluff. I feel bad for saying that, but um, the original short story is so good. It starts in medias res in the middle of the action and is so well-paced that while the expanded novelization is a very interesting historical find... I think the short story holds up better overall. Um, Campbell was obviously pleased with it as he chose to release it instead of the novel-length version that he'd written. It's a bit like Aliens, right? The theatrical cut of Aliens is excellent, and in my opinion, superior to the director's cut or the special edition version that's everywhere. The special edition isn't nearly as suspenseful, it's just longer, and it's just ended up being ubiquitous. The new film more closely following the plot of the original story means we're likely to end up with more characters and a creature which possesses both a definite 50s alien form and telepathy, both of which seem that they might be a bit of a hard sell for a modern film. But I, you know, I will go and see it, obviously, because, um, frankly, you could release anything and put the thing on it and I will go and see it. Peter, will you, um, will you break it down in excruciating detail with me when it comes out? Uh, depends how much you like it. <laughs> it would be really weird if you loved it and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like the other way around so who knows when that will be out I, conservatively I'd guess like 2024 yeah that um, doesn't seem unlikely fingers crossed though I'm sure it'll be good it, it does have some exciting names starting to become attached to it so we'll just have to wait and see gosh with that I guess this is our very last let's talk about the thing the section in which we talk about the thing Oh, I'm sad. We've come so far, my son. Stop that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you can call me daddy, but you absolutely cannot under any no, circumstances. I <laughs> if you do, I'll call the police. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Christ, getting back on topic. What happens next? You said Mac discovers the thing mid-attack and then attacks the thing as it bursts through the floorboards. You, uh, you still happy with that? You think you did well? I feel like I'm half right. Mm, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would say you're all right. Well, he doesn't really d- discover a mid-attack, right? He, he just mm. kind of uh, notices that the others have gone missing and yeah. then gets attacked. Yeah, before we were before we were recording, you saying that you sort of remembered a scene of Knowles being transformed, which just isn't in the film. Yeah, there's a there's two things that I distinctly remember from this part of the film. Uh yeah, uh that I distinctly remember from this part of the film that just don't happen. I thought I remembered Knowles being on the floor 
and getting absorbed like there being a shot of him being sort of half absorbed by the thing uh, and i thought that when um mccready confronts the thing monster kind of face to face we see a bit of gary face in mm. in the monster and that just seems to both of those things just seem to not happen so i've got no idea where i got them from it's very interesting though mm. uh they you've sort of made up things that don't happen mm. it's clearly it's clear your attention is wandering by this point of the film <laughs> <laughs> um so Possibly the very last infection tracker then. You've got who's infected, Blair and Gary. We've got a question mark over Gary because while he's undoubtedly infected, who knows what's really going on after his face sucking. Yeah. Uh, Who's not infected? McCready and Knowles. Maybe infected? Childs. Who's dead? Bennings, Fuchs, Copper, Clark and Windows. Who's dead because they were a thing? Norris and Palmer. Uh, That's everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, so this is the very last time we're going to do this, Peter. We are looking at minutes 1 hour and 36 to 1 hour and 48. Ooh, that's 12 minutes mm. of the thing, the final 12 minutes of the film, because we didn't want to do one podcast about four minutes of credits. Yeah, I'm uh, ready. I've got my uh, recorder leg, a famous uh, Norwegian cider. <laughs> is it Norwegian? Uh, no, it's Swedish. I was doing oh. a little reference there. I was getting it wrong, but in <laughs> the other way around, you see. <laughs> oh, very good, very good. I I genuinely couldn't remember. I haven't I haven't seen a bottle in months. <laughs> you like McCready in so many ways, um, <laughs> oh, especially in that I'm an alcoholic at this point. Um, all right, with that, it is time. It is time. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read through my bulleted list, as always. I'm not explaining this. It's the last one. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) The men continue wiring up bombs. Elsewhere in the cave, Blair drags Gary away, face first. Mm. this is kind of grim that he's just like completely immobile and being dragged away. Yeah, um, I mean, I, w- I was getting dead basically at this point. Yeah, yeah, no, he he looks real dead. Whereas, you know, the thing is always sort of taking people over yeah. while they're alive. I mean, look at what happens to Windows during the blood yeah. test scene. So has it just straight up murdered Gary for biomass? Um, it's not really clear to me. Yeah, I, I, or is there even a difference? Like, can can he just absorb him face first and then just imitate Gary? It's it's hard to yeah. say. It's, it's probably fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could uh, just uh, have this Gary hand and use it <laughs> as a weapon, I guess. <laughs> I actually always miss this scene when I'm watching the movie and not really paying attention because it's, for a very unsubtle scene, it's actually quite subtle. Knowles <laughs> mm. hears the sound and goes to investigate. Poor choice, I feel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would. I would just say, "Hey, Mac, I'm just gonna just gonna go over there for a moment." Yeah, this is the last we see of Knowles uh, in the film. What What do you think happens to him? Well, I imagine that he gets uh, attacked by the thing in a similar way to Gary getting attacked, and just on the quiet. And then, who knows after that? Well, we'll come back to Knowles in a little bit, but he actually has a number of different deaths 
<laughs> uh, in the comics, which you know, who knows if they're canonical or not. Um, I I really hope not. <laughs> uh, McCready finds him burned in the base after everything is done with. Yeah. So he just died in a fire. In the novelization, which is based off the original shooting scripts, he gets a fairly undignified death. In that version of the film, the men are trying to have a final standoff with the thing in the rec room, but it lures some of them out. And Knowles is trapped by it in a toilet cubicle and slits his own throat with a chunk of broken wood as it's trying to break in. Wow. Um, there is, of course, another possibility, mm-hmm. um, which is that he is infected after all, and he's like, okay, time to join my friends. Yeah, that's... Um... <laughs> I'll just I'll just go around the corner. Everything will be fine. Yeah, yeah, that is a possibility. But of course, we have seen that he is a human from the blood test results. So that's true. So it would have had to have happened at some point that we didn't see. Yeah, yeah. McCready sits wiring up a detonator. He calls out to Knowles and realizes he's all alone. Can you imagine the horror of realizing that in just a handful of seconds, your team of three human beings have all been picked off and it's just you? Yeah, because I think at this point you'd have to come to the conclusion that they've just been picked off because where would they have gone? Yeah, he calls out a couple of times and then he just stops mid-sentence as he realizes and it's just such a great scene. Mm. McCready walks up to the entrance of the storage area and waits. He lights a stick of dynamite. It's not actually Kurt Russell here, but it's rather Dick Warlock getting ready for his stunt uh, whenever you don't see his face in close-up in this bit. I mean, I get why he lights a stick of dynamite already, but still, that's a nervy thing to do when you don't even know where your adversary is. Yeah, I think it's quite clear that both people who've gone down that corridor haven't come back, so... um, If I was in his situation and I had that stick of dynamite, I'd probably be trying to cave that ceiling in. Yeah. Suddenly, the floorboards all burst up in a line, racing towards McCready. He jumps for safety, dropping his dynamite. This is quite exciting, isn't it? Well, yeah. So, how this is all achieved is that there's basically a train track underneath the set with a big metal ball on it. And the ball is attached to a high-speed winch, which will pull it towards the camera, ripping up the floor. Nice. So, it's it's all happening... Like, this isn't a model, it's... The full-size set is being destroyed by a giant metal ball. The apparatus was built by Roy Arbogast, and this is another of the shots they were very nervous about because there really was absolutely no retaking it. They had to get it right first time because the set would be destroyed by this. Yeah. A tendril bursts up through the floor and grabs the detonator, pulling it out of reach. Hmm. This So to me, this suggests that at least... Uh, that when the thing is fully monsterfied, if that's what you could call it, Mm -hmm. uh, then it it still has some coherent thoughts because this seems deliberate. I was going to say, this definitely implies intelligence, doesn't it? Because it knows what the detonator is and it knows that if it whips it away, he's boned. (laughs) Yeah, it's not just purely acting on instinct here. No, which suggests that it's been thinking this whole time, which is kind of creepy. Hmm. Can you tell how they achieved this shot of the grabby tendril? I was going to say it was backwards, but that's nonsense. (laughs) That would be much more difficult. Um, At this point in the film, they were just trying to make it extra hard for themselves. Usually that's the answer, but no, not here. No, go on. How how do they do it? It's actually stop-motion animation. Yeah. It's a little animated tendril that whips out, grabs the thing, and pulls it back in. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to stop animation in just one second, because... I believe so, yes. 
a Blair thing monster bursts up through the floor, writhing, a half-human, half-creature face letting out a terrible wail. So, stop-motion animation, then. Yeah, first of all, I've got to address this thing again of where this is where I was expecting to see a Gary face mm. uh, and and didn't. I, I'm now starting to suspect that there's some slightly similar scenes in uh, the prequel film. Yeah. And I'm getting them mixed up. Yeah, what I think you might be thinking of is the section in the 2011 movie where they are in the UFO and mm. there's a monster, but it has a human face on it with sort of quite crude CGI. Yeah. Does he look anything like Gary? <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think he's got a beard. Uh, I don't know. It, it's it's really strange to me. I, I have a really clear image in my head of that. <laughs> Randy Cook led the team who did the stop motion animation. What happened in the stop motion footage was the Blair thing bursts through the floor, riding on an enormous tentacle that's moving it around. Right. And when it reaches full size, his chest rips open and a dog thing bursts out on another long tentacle, which lands snarling on the ground just in front of MacReady. Mm. In order to achieve this, James Belahovic and Susan Turner, who you might remember did the small scale modeling of the UFO at the start of the film, yeah. made a whole model of the underground cave set built on a two and a half inch to one foot scale. Mm. So that's, that's pretty big. I mean, um, in the documentaries about it you can see are holding up some of the props and like the oil cans are like bigger than coke cans huh. so it's it's quite a big old set they had to build for it yeah it was built on a platform so the animators could get underneath it to work um she was saying the icicles are the most difficult bits because they had to remain exactly the same throughout every shot because obviously right. you know with stop footage they're moving it frame by frame by frame but they had a tendency to wiggle so they had to be cast out of silicone mm. Uh, unfortunately, when the whole sequence got cut together, John Carpenter didn't think it looked realistic enough, and it took the audience out of the film, so it just got dropped. Right. Uh, I've got nothing but respect for stop-motion animators, especially from watching the little snippets at the end of Leica movies, where you see exactly how they achieve all the effects. Yeah. Uh, you can see the barest hints of this remaining in the thing when the tendril grabs the detonator and the monster bursts out the floor, but it's really worth tracking down to see just because it's incredible the amount of work they put in. Yeah. Going back to Norse, this is where we see what happened to him. His fate in the script, which got storyboarded, shows that Norse was also going to burst out of the floor here as well. Ah. His face was going to be sunken in and cadaverous, and he was going to be begging MacReady to help him before his whole body was torn apart by a giant tentacle moving inside him. Oh dear. Rob Bettine realized they didn't have the time or budget to film it, so it was scrapped at the last minute, and we get what we see here. Norse's face is left ambiguous. Yeah, and so this uh, this monster that they finally come up with, I, I I find this effect fine. I don't think it's quite as good as the rest of the effects to me. It, it doesn't. I, I don't find it quite as convincing as, for example, the monster that bursts out of um, the chest mm. a little while ago, uh, or uh, the dog monster at the beginning. No, no. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of people agree that it isn't the best one in the film, but you have to see something. And yeah. at this point, they're hitting budgetary and time constraints more yeah. or less constantly. And also, you know, this is just the climax of the film. You just have to have something happen real scary, yeah. real quick, and then the film is over. Yeah, um, no, it, it works fine. It doesn't take me out of it or anything. I just think it's probably the uh, the least kind of effective one of the all of the full monster reveals that you yeah get. yeah i mean um but obviously they have all yeah you know the aforementioned problems with it 
Yeah. The monster splits open along the side, and a dog face emerges to howl at MacReady. So um, the final Blair thing is the biggest monster effect they had to do in the film, and it required 50 people to operate it. Mm-hmm. MacReady grabs the stick of dynamite and dives into the snow. He turns and throws it back at the creature. The um, the dive and roll here is uh, Dick Warlock again, who's Kurt Russell's personal stuntman. <laughs> the, uh, were you laughing at Dick Warlock? Yeah, of course I was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We've been through this. You're so immature. <laughs> Uh, yeah, fuck you two is a great line. <laughs> uh, what, I mean, how many possible responses can you get to a monster popping up and going at you through the floor? Yeah. Uh, an excellent work, McCready, in coming up with a quip under these <laughs> trying circumstances. Oh, it really is the only one of those in the film, I guess. If this was like, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was playing McCready, <laughs> he'd be like, hey, the thing. I'll be back. <laughs> Ice to see you. Oh, Christ alive. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> the creature howls as the dynamite explodes, destroying it. So um, Stuart Cohen's blog says that for the noise of the monster's howl, they were looking for a large definitive square sound, and you certainly hear a great deal of lion what <laughs> <laughs> well you know when they're uh, they're stitching all the roars together aren't they that's what uh, we right. covered that earlier they're um basically putting a whole load of roars and artificial noises together to see what they can come up with i think i lost the thread around the time you said square <laughs> they also included king kong's final roar just as a little tip of the hat oh that's fun hmm. it's uh I've never really picked that up myself. I'm just glad that he doesn't get like a Wilhelm scream. <laughs> <laughs> it's so noticeable now when you do. I hear that in films. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. We cut to outside, and explosion after explosion racks the camp. So this is them blowing up the whole camp they built with explosives and recording it with remote cameras. If you look carefully, you'll see that the helicopters and bulldozers are gone because they were real and expensive. (laughs) And they didn't want to blow them up. And, of course, after all this is done, this then becomes the remains of the Norwegian camp that they film in. Yes. Hmm. Taking us full circle. MacReady wanders sluggishly among the burning remains of the camp. He settles down, ice already forming in his beard. Behind him, Child steps out. It's nice that at the, the beginning of this shot, you can't really see who it is. Mm. So uh, they actually went back and forth a lot on how the movie should end, with Kurt Russell insisting that the two of them had to die. Uh, but Carpenter was very reluctant to end the movie with both leads being flamethrowered to death by each other. Mm. Uh, Kurt Russell actually came up with the ending that got filmed. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think... It would have been as good as ending if they just both died. <laughs> uh, I think this was the right ending. I, I suppose when we actually get to it, we can we can discuss it a bit more. But yeah, I think this is an interesting ending. Mm. The studio actually wanted to test an ending where Child doesn't return. So there exists a cut where it just ends here with McCready sitting down, staring blankly into the camp. Yeah, I I, th- I, I think that would have been unsatisfying in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also another ending that got discussed. But I'm not sure if it got filmed. Where 
it cuts here before Charles gets back to McCready in a hospital getting a blood test that proves he's human. Mm. Uh, John Carpenter and the cast hated that ending. <laughs> they ran all three endings past an audience, and fortunately, audience reaction was very poor to all three cuts. So John Carpenter <laughs> got to keep his preferred ending because they hated all of them equally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, I, I mean, I guess since we're talking about this now, we can we can get into it a bit. But, yeah, I think the first time that I saw this ending, uh, I was a little bit surprised by it. I was like, oh, we're, we're, we're cutting there, are we? Okay. Mm. Um, uh, and I, I think at first I'm not sure how I felt about that ending. Um, it has grown on me considerably the more mm. that I've, I've seen this, I think. It's very surprising the first time you see it, and yeah. it's just like everyone is dead. Movie over, um, and it's still not a hundred percent sure whether they've done what they set out to do. I mean, they blew up the thing, but it's so tenacious; mm. like it survived for a hundred thousand years or twelve million in the ice. Yeah, but it is certainly memorable <laughs> as an ending. Yeah, I think I think out of the three, they definitely picked the best one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, based on what you described. The film has a sort of very nihilistic ending, and they were saying that part of the reason it didn't do so well when it came out is, you know, it was just a little while after E.T. So the cultural zeitgeist was for aliens as, you know, cute friends who will help you out, not who will burst out of your innards mm. and take over your friends. Well, sometimes the thing helps you out until he bursts out of your innards. Um <laughs> An uneasy alliance. MacReady asked Charles where he was. He says he went to follow Blair in the snow, and he got lost in the storm. So, does Charles' story hold up? Is he infected? I think the story is plausible. I just think that it's sort of unverifiable as well. Mm. Only because I kind of tend towards optimism with these sorts of films. Possibly it's not... Uh, I've talked about this before, but I tend to want to think the best of people, which is not necessarily the survival strategy here. But I, I think that Childs isn't a thing. That's just my gut. Um, mm. And uh, I think it, he was telling the truth there. I think that's easily something that could have happened uh, based on what we saw. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's got holes. I mean, like, you know, saying that he got lost in the storm when, you know, the storm is so bad and, like, being out in the storm for a little while will kill you. But MacReady did exactly the same thing, not, right. you know, 20 minutes ago in the film. So both of our leads have had mysterious snow ventures that we weren't with them for. Yeah, and it's plausible to think that he went out, the generator went down, and mm. so the lights across the exactly went down he gets lost and then there's a massive explosion which enables him to find his way back to the camp <laughs> i was gonna say if, if anything's yeah. gonna help you find your way back like the entire place exploding probably will yeah Although, would you really want to stagger towards that <laughs> and he does look ex like genuinely exhausted so he could be putting it on but he, I, I feel like he is well his his ultimate fate is left unclear um mm -hmm. In the comics, Charles turns up again as a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the video game, he's found as a dead, frozen human being. So who knows? I see. The two of them settle down opposite each other. Charles says that the fire's got the temperature up all over the camp, but it won't last for long. They discuss what they can do if either of them is the thing. It's too late for both of them. So 
the chemistry between the two of them here is incredible. This is such a tense scene. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that both of them are clearly so exhausted, they can't do anything. Yeah. Um, and the lighting is great as well. So Dean Cundy is lowering the lights on the two of them constantly as the fires die around them until it's just barely their faces lit. Yeah. It, it works so well. Charles asks what they should do. McCready says they should just sit here for a little while and see what happens. So, like, spelling it out here, he's just saying that they should just sit there and wait to die, right? Perhaps. I I, I took it more as, um, like, just sit here for a little while and see if one of them turns into a thing and and attacks the other one. Of course, but if, um, if neither of them do, then that's both men dead opposite each other in the ice. Yeah, um... I don't know whether after a while they wouldn't see if there was something that they could mm. uh, do. In my head, there is one very slim chance for them. Oh, yeah? Which is that wherever the generator was taken off to didn't get blown up, and they somehow could find it. Mm. Uh, and then they could go to maybe an area because there's quite a lot of buildings in this base right some of them are quite distant we saw mm. the McCready's shack was quite a long way away from the rest of the base so maybe there's an area of unexploded base somewhere <laughs> if they could get the d- generator up there hole up in an unexploded bit of base and maybe if there was some food and supplies stored in that area of the base it's unclear whether there would be they could last out there long enough to have a hope of rescue and uh do you know what i definitely watch that film um <laughs> it's giving me a uh, 10 cloverfield lane vibes <laughs> <laughs> i've never seen that film <laughs> oh it's it's very good we'll watch it at some point Mm. Uh, I can't really say too much because it's it's quite spoilery if I do. Uh, fair enough. So that that is uh, the, it's it's a really narrow path to survival. Mm. I, I admit, but like I said, I tend to be an optimist about these endings, even when they seem pretty bleak. So I'm thinking. So even as I'm thinking, oh, they're probably doomed. My another part of my brain is thinking, okay, but how could but they, how can they get out of this situation? How, how could they get out of this? Yeah. And I think there is a slim chance for them. <laughs> I've got a um, I've got a note here because we you know spelled out what their plan was that just says um, uh, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> That's a uh, quote from a TV program we've watched called uh, Dark Place. I recommend mm. it if you'd like, like to watch <laughs> something like that. It's a it's kind of a kind of a parody of old bad horror tv shows <laughs> that's a really good explanation of dark place because i was thinking how would you sum it up in one sentence and i wasn't able to <laughs> mccready mm. passes charles's scotch and charles takes a swig mccready laughs so i'm not sure if we mentioned it earlier but it's j and b scotch uh, which is the scotch he's been drinking throughout the film there's a popular fan theory that the scotch bottle contains gasoline because McCready had been making Molotov cocktails throughout the last section of the film. And that's why he laughs, because he knows that Charles just drank gasoline, so he's a thing. Personally, I think that theory is obvious nonsense, because A, McCready goes to drink from it himself just before Charles appears, and B, 
the things know what their former hosts know, and Charles the human wouldn't just take a big swig of petrol and go, mmm, that's delicious, fellow humans. So yeah. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't make any sense at all, but it is quite pervasive. Mm. We cut to a distant shot of the camp burning in the night. The theme, desolation, fades back in here for the final time. We fade to black, and the credits roll. <gasps> Gasp. Yeah, there's something that's very effective, I think, about that music coming in, and then it doesn't just cut to credits music or something. It just the it just goes to credits while that music is still playing. I uh, don't know what it is, but I feel like that really sells the ending to me. The more I watch this, mm. so. I was listening to the director's commentary for this bit of the movie and Carpenter and Russell both say here that making a film is a lot like having a kid. You do the best you can and you send it out into the world. And it was disappointing to see it not be well received at the time. But as time has gone by and it's been reappraised, they both say it's been a genuine pleasure to talk to fans who almost always talk to them about this film above anything else. Mm. Carpenter says it's the first film he'd done for a big studio and he was amazed by what great work you can achieve if the whole studio is all behind you all pulling together. Like the blood test scene required like dozens and dozens of people doing various different things that might not have been possible for a small independent production. Mm. I guess that wraps up what they're saying. So at this point, I told you last time after we recorded the podcast that I was originally planning to read out one interesting fact about everyone named in the credits, and you seemed horrified by the idea of that. Seemed skeptical that we could complete that task within our natural <laughs> lifetimes, yeah. I did check afterwards, and it's 188 names, mm. which would take around 94 minutes to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in, in order to not double the length of this podcast, uh, I've just got a bunch of little interesting things that I picked up along the way. Yeah, and so I guess we've touched on this before, but it uh, often it gets lost, especially when you kind of got this idea of the uh, director as a kind of author of mm. the, uh, films that these these I was going to say the word, but I'm not going to <laughs> uh, uh, films like this. Any film really just is a collaboration on a very big scale and um whenever i actually uh, very often when i watch a film or when i finish a game or something like that i spend time just sitting through the credits just because mm. um i feel like i want to acknowledge the just huge number of people that were involved in making this happen in some capacity uh it gets hard to sit through some of these now just because they get yeah. longer and longer year on year but um but it is just really mind-boggling to think how many people have to pull together in the same direction to make one of these things come off even vaguely go coherent oh absolutely and you've said it like 10 times better than I ever could. But like, this is part of why I wanted to definitely include the credits because mm. everyone working together made the film. It, you know, it's John Carpenter's baby, but if the craft services people hadn't turned up to cook food for the film crew and the cast, there wouldn't have been a movie, would there? You know, no. every, everyone involved pulling together made the film happen. And that's the same for every film, uh, regardless yeah. of how successful it was at the box office or whatever, you know, there are all these people who work together to make a piece of art. 
Yeah, everything right down to the catering, but also just all of the creative decisions are absolutely. Uh, obviously, John Carpenter's ultimately responsible for those, but mm. they he's drawing on the expertise of so many people to to turn it into something that, that it's um, so important to to acknowledge that when you when you talk about one how one of these things gets made in any uh, detail. You can ding me. Oh, did you say things? I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, you can have one for old times' sake. Ah, thank you. <laughs> I was I was thinking about what to say next. I missed that one. <laughs> um, it, it is such a complex thing. I mean, because uh, as you know, that, that we shut up. We tried to do. <laughs> I, you, you you know what? You did one just now, and uh, <laughs> you let it go, that, and I let it go because I was like, you let you just let me go, so I'm going to let you go, and then you did it again. I couldn't let you go twice. Uh, sorry. Uh, the the armistice is over. There, yeah. there is no peace between our people. Yeah. Oh, it's a Christmas miracle, but only temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> the truce is over, and the war is back on. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was going to say I don't really want to get into it too much, but as you know, we tried to do a um a little video project earlier this year, which got cancelled because of the coronavirus, where I was yeah. directing, and um that certainly has given me a new, a deep and newfound respect for a directors and b every single person involved in a production, because oh, it, it is just spinning one hundred thousand plates <laughs> all the time, trying to get everyone pulling in the right direction. Yeah, oh, that's a lot of work. I, I mean, we were recording what, like twenty minutes of footage or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, twenty and... twenty minutes of footage, and it it took over a day. Uh, <laughs> that that is, it was supposed to be edited together into like a twenty minute thing uh, yeah. at, the, at the end, but yeah, it took uh, well, it would have taken well over a day to finish uh, recording for just uh, that twenty minutes, and it's so slow. There's so much downtime in it because of all of the different things that you have to organize around making a shot happen. Yeah, that's that, that's something I didn't really have clear in my head that you know, obviously, there's lighting and there's blocking and there's um, getting the cameras focused and everything, and it all takes time and it all takes so much time, and then everyone gets hungry and you have to feed them you know yeah. it's yeah. Uh, there's there's so much stuff involved and people have to change costumes like uh like i genuinely take my hat off to anyone who can who can put all this stuff together and come up with something that's vaguely coherent at the end of it all yeah at some point we're back when the the world is in a state where we're allowed to get within two meters of each other hmm. um I would love to uh, attempt something like that again and just see yeah. it through because it, we saw little bits of what we were making uh, kind of come together and it is so satisfying to see the results of that and have, yeah. see it actually work. It, it's like on the day when you're filming it, you're like watching a weird exploded version of what <laughs> finally comes together and you really have very little idea of how it's going to come together i suppose like once you get experience you have an idea but mm. but when you're not very experienced you really have little idea of how it's all going to fuse together in in the end and it's some sort of magic some sort of sorcery i swear definitely definitely i'd say as as director watching someone do the same thing five times and hoping that in some point between there we've got them doing it in a coherent manner what's <laughs> my favorite yeah. Going back to what you were saying about credits, I, I generally don't hang around for them in cinemas now just because they are so long and like I will have drunk seven liters of Coke during the production and my bladder is only so big. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but 
uh, I got to see a few films in the BAFTA private cinema a few years ago. Yeah. And I definitely like sat all the way to the end of those. Cause I was like, you know, this is where these people are going to be like, you know, the people yeah. who made these films are, are here. So it, it would be very disrespectful to just wander off <laughs> like, while yeah. they were wrapping them up. Also though, I, uh, I enjoy credits on a giving respect level, but also there's a lot of weird names in Hollywood, let's be honest, and it is quite enjoyable just to find those names and realize that there are people called all sorts of things. I don't just mean like it's uh, – uh, just to be clear, I don't mean that there are some funny foreign names or whatever, like, but, but I mean there are just some – surprising names and i'm sure we'll encounter some of those as we go through the use credits as well i really i really like this section of the podcast for the uh the highbrow um you know i i want to stay to give credit to all of these people for all of the you know long work they've done and also some of them might have a silly sounding name that will make me giggle uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, both things can coexist in my opinion <laughs> the duality of man <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, so we've got the cast here. I'm just going to read them out because we've spoken about them before. So we've got Kurt Russell as McCready, mm -hmm. A. Wilford Brimley as Blair, just A. Wilford Brimley, not the Wilford Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think about that every time as well. <laughs> uh, T.K. Carter as Knowles, David Clennon as Palmer, Keith David as Childs, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper, Charles Hallahan as Norris, Peter Maloney as Bennings, Richard Mazur as Clark, Donald Buffett as Gary, Joel Polis as Fuchs, and Thomas Waits as Windows. Uh, actually, I take it back. I don't like credits. It's just twice as many names to remember. I was having <laughs> a, enough trouble remembering the name of the characters, let alone all these people who played them. All right, we've got Norbert Weisser as the Norwegian pilot. He's a famous German character actor. Apparently his Norwegian is passable, but his accent is strange. Uh -huh. uh, we've got Larry Franco as the Norwegian passenger. He's the one who gets blown up trying to retrieve his grenade. Uh, he's also the first assistant director, and at the time this film was made, Kurt Russell's brother-in-law. <laughs> wow, how did they um, make the rest of the film if he got blown up so early? No, it's a... No, never mind. He also plays one of the Norwegians in the footage they find. John Lloyd, the production designer, worked on this, Big Trouble in Little China, and The Naked Gun, the from the files of Police Squad, the Naked Gun film. Oh, cool. I know that film. I, yeah, it's it's a film you've seen. So rare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Albert Whitlock here, credited for special visual effects. We discussed him earlier. One of his roles was painting the matte paintings. We've got John Dwyer as a set decorator. I just wanted to bring him up because he did a really good job. The camp definitely looks lived in, and the fact that they are sort of living in it really does help that as well. Yeah, there's um, uh, there's a lot of detail there, and it's it, it's something else that you don't maybe think about when you're watching one of these things. That every little Every little object, <laughs> <Well done. laughs> every little object is what I'm going to say. Uh, that you you see on set had to be had to come from somewhere, and had someone had to decide to put it there. Um, mm. uh, unless they're literally filming on a, in a location that is already what it's intended to be. You know, mm. um, if it's a if it's a built set like this, they need to think about every item that goes into that set and every time they add a new thing uh the continuity editor gets slightly more insane <laughs> damn you sir <laughs> damn the torpedoes 
we reach Rob Bettine here, credited for special effects makeup. This credit caused Universal to receive a $25,000 fine for improper use of titles. Uh, that's a shame, because you're already out money before you've started. <laughs> <laughs> like, I imagine quite a lot of people need to go to the box office to recoup that 25000 <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I don't think they did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it made it up on home video, so that's where yeah. we are. Uh, we got Roy Arbogast for special effects, responsible for the mechanical works inside Bettine's Monsters. We got Thomas Causey for production sound. Ronald T. Woodward as a key grip. Peter, what do you think a key grip is? Uh, I feel like I knew this at some point, but I have forgotten. Well, a grip is a technician who works on the cameras or the lighting rigs, and a key grip is the person who's in charge of all of them. Okay, I I was going to tentatively say I think it's something to do with lighting rigs, (laughs) but, uh, but I wasn't confident enough to say it. Uh, the next name I want to draw attention to is the electric best boy, Charles E. Nipple. I mean, there's a lot to <laughs> unpack there, isn't there? Uh, apparently, sometimes it's written as Best Boy Electric, which like sounds like an 80s synthwave album. Um, okay. okay, what is a best boy and what is the difference when they're electric? <laughs> well, the best boy is an assistant to the department heads who will be, if they're an electric best boy, it'll be the gaffer who's in charge of the electrics. And if, and the other one for lighting and rigging is called the key grip. We already covered that. So, so electric best boy is the same credit as gaffer. uh, No, no, the, uh, the electric best boy is the assistant to the gaffer. Ah, the electric best boy is the I can't keep saying that, it's destroying my mind. Is the the electrics equivalent of the key grip who mm. works on the cameras and lighting. Electric Best Boy would be a really good name for an album. I I already said that. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yes, I did. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> oh it. Sorry. Dad doesn't even fucking listen to me when I'm recording a podcast. Jesus Christ. Um <laughs> I was probably thinking of the name Nipple. <laughs> do you i looked at his imdb page but it's unclear how it's supposed to be pronounced do you think he goes with nipple or like nip nipple god that's like that mr tickle in um <laughs> what, what's the show um the thick, uh, of, it. The thick of it yeah <laughs> tickle <laughs> name's tickle um <laughs> the bouquet residence the lady yeah. of the house speaking yes um all right god moving on uh, we've got Michael Plug as a production illustrator. Aside from having another great name, his artwork for the thing really is something. He was involved very early on, like John Carpenter told him to work directly with Rob Bettine so they could really get across his vision for the monsters. Mm. Uh, next up, we've got special thanks to Stan Winston. He's a uh, special thanked here because he came in to help with the special effects for the dog thing when Bettine was hospitalized from exhaustion. But ah, yes, uh, Stan Winston that. didn't want to be credited because he thought it would take away credit from Bettine, so he gets a special thanks. We reach the music credits, where we've got uh, Don't Explain by Billie Holiday. Now, where did this get played in the film? I don't know. I feel like we should have investigated this, but my if I had to guess, hmm. uh, it's at the point where they're all hanging out and they're one of them's watching a game show and they're playing poker and... Uh, I, I imagine there might have been some music at mm. that point, maybe that I that we missed. 
Well, I uh, I did investigate, and um, it's playing very softly when the men are playing poker and pool and relaxing just after Mac and Copper get back from the Norwegian camp. So it's it's playing very softly in the background. There's like less than a second of it. So I nailed it. I, it, it was when they were relaxing and playing poker. Yeah. You did. Well done. Although you did say it was when one of them was watching a game show, and that's, that's a different scene. So I can, oh, I right. can only I, give you half a point for that. I, I, I conflated those two scenes, I think. You did. And I will never forgive you for it. uh the next music credit is superstition by stevie wonder which is of course what Knowles is listening to too loudly when uh, bennings has just been shot that is uh, yeah that's a more memorable use of music i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's also the one that they had trouble licensing and replaced with um a different song at one point for Mm -hmm. the home video release finally the credits fade out over the usual mpaa logos and we see the universal logo finally at last here deferred from the start and we end. Uh, and I really thought that we were getting a post-credit sequence that I'd never seen before for a second. There, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what I was expecting to see. Maybe another spaceship crashing, <laughs> or uh, maybe um, a spaceship taking off. <laughs> it cuts to a completely burned camp, like dead and lifeless, and a tiny little thing that's just an eyeball on a stalk, like wobbles yeah. away into the snow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like coming 1984 adventures <laughs> of little thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd pay for it. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that brings us to the end of the movie. Wow. We finished a thing. That's unheard of. Um, <laughs> and I, me- I meant it. Thing. <laughs> I meant it in the con as, as the, the you know, the name of the film. Then you would have said, we finished the thing, wouldn't you? You would have said, we, we finished what you said. I'm, I'm lying, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> All right, well then it just leaves me to ask you, what happens next? Um, we move on with our lives and <laughs> <laughs> never speak of this again. Um, <laughs> uh, are you sure? I was thinking alien. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so this was fun. Um, we have some stuff to consider, I guess. Mm. Uh, Alien would be a good one to do. I think I'm marginally more familiar with Alien. I, I feel like I've just seen it a couple more times than this. Mm. Uh, I, But I'm in a similar place with that one where I'm not super into it and you are super into it. Yeah, um, it's 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 my second favorite movie. So obviously, because I'm fucking insufferable, I'm going to be almost as up on it as I am the thing, right? Yeah, but um, uh, we can only su- sustain that template for so long. I mean, by the time we're watching your 82nd favorite film, <laughs> um, I feel like we might be getting into the dregs. Well, I'll tell you what, what we can do is um, we can come up with a few films that we'd like and we can put them on our Patreon for people to vote on. Uh, yeah, that certainly exists. Uh, <laughs> I'm a uh, note to self, create a Patreon around episode five. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'll have to retroactively plug it. Um, oh shit. Um, hang on. Let's, let, let's do a quick, let's do a few here. And don't forget to, uh, back our Patreon at a $50 a month or more. Uh, we will send you a signed nude photograph we will not do that (laughs) 
remember, if you're interested in uh, hearing more of us, we do have a Patreon. Uh, you can subscribe to that and uh, hear outtakes and uh, just sometimes five-minute sections of us screaming. <laughs> um, if you back at the $100 tier or above, you gain access to the version of the thing which was hand-drawn by Peter with me doing all of the voices. Um <laughs> It's a shot for shot remake. <laughs> um, and if you subscribe to our Patreon this month, you can hear the uh, edit of the thing I made where in a fit of peak, I just remove the soundtrack by Morricone and replace it with my own. <laughs> oh, uh, that's that's a funny joke, but I genuinely am curious what you would do. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that should do. We just uh, sprinkle those uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, along I'll the do- previous episodes. Uh, note to self: remember to cut those into the previous episodes before you release them. Mm. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So we'll figure out what we're watching next. As we've talked about, I like uh, a few films a lot, but I don't really have a similar thing where I am particularly obsessed with a film that you don't know very well, I think. So I don't know whether this works the other way around. But if we mm. if we manage to think of something, maybe even a video game or something like that, we can figure out a way of doing it that way around. Well, you could definitely do it with video games means. because I've only ever played Halo. Um <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I guess now I just got to ask you what you thought of the film now that you've seen the entire thing and analyzed it in a greater detail than I assume you ever thought you would do in your entire life. Yes, of course. So um, I enjoyed it. Um, mm. I wouldn't say I fell in love with it or anything like that, but I would say that it has given me more of an appreciation of it, particularly getting into the ending. I feel like. Yeah, that with this watching, that ending really has grown on me, as I said before. Mm. Um, I think there are certain scenes that I didn't pay much attention to before, which I like a lot more than I, I, I ever really um, did before, because I wasn't paying so much attention to them. That's something I'm thinking of at the moment is the the scene where Blair is kind of smashing up that room. Um, <laughs> He's having a great time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never really paid a lot of attention to that scene in the film before. And now that I do pay attention to it, I, I find there's a lot to like about it um, <laughs> and various other scenes as well. So yeah, it has, it has heightened my appreciation for the film, mm. but um, as I kind of alluded to last time, uh, it's, it is still basically a film in a genre that I'm just not as into as you oh, are. Oh, so oh, so uh, it's it's never going to be my fave, but I'm glad that we did this. And it, 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 goes, it goes to show, uh, really, that um, I, I don't know where, whether this is true, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, that ev- everything is interesting if you look at it close enough. Yeah, this wasn't like a big ruse in order to brainwash you into liking the thing. But I'm glad that um, Mm -hmm. you came out of the experience positively and that this wasn't just me forcing you to watch a movie you didn't like for months. Um, (laughs) Uh, What's what's good is it means we can watch it again like normal people now. We can just watch the film without having to stop it at certain points. We we can, yeah. I'm glad that the result of this little experiment hasn't been, well, uh, before I was fairly indifferent to the thing, and now I actively dislike it. Um, (laughs) 
that hasn't been the result. I, I, you know, I like the film. I, you know, would watch again, would watch a reboot of it in the cinema with you at some point mm. when we're allowed. Um, <laughs> Bold of you to assume that cinemas will exist in the future, but sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a good one. Um, for me, I mean, I found it very interesting that even though this is conservatively like the hundredth time I've seen this film, right? Pro- probably more than that, to be mm. honest. Sometimes, sometimes I watch it a lot. <laughs> it's the upshot of this. That even then, I'm still discovering new stuff that I hadn't seen before, and like the research has really revealed to me stuff that I I thought I had a handle on, but. You know, it's like a rabbit hole. You can just keep going and going and going. Even when I was preparing the notes for this last episode, I was like, there is stuff we haven't covered uh, <laughs> in, you know, in this analysis. Nothing pleased me more than the couple of moments during this when I said something uh, that you hadn't thought about before. Because um, <laughs> I'm like, if I... If, if I've thought of something that you haven't thought of, it, it must be good. Like when uh, uh, the one that sticks out for me is when they were watching that game show and when they were playing poker, and I was like, oh, these are all kind of alluding to the the hidden information of <laughs> yeah. uh, of who is the thing. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I, I never really picked up on that. But, you know, subtext is for cowards, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I guess at this point we just have to say where we are found on the internet. Uh, I'm Kieran J. Walsh, and you are Kestrel Pie. That's Kestrel like the bird, and Pie like the irrational number. See, I know the thing. I can do the thing. Yeah, those. You, uh, you can ding up. me twice if you like. I said. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um. I guess I just got to thank you for putting up with all of this bullshit and me in general, Peter. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this project that may or may not have been a good idea. Let's see. Let's hope we release it and it's very well received and we don't have to wait for the home video release for it to be popular and achieve a <laughs> cult following. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, a genuine pleasure working with you. And I hope you at home have got something from this probably a headache or the sense that there are people out there who are dangerously obsessed with movies that came out before they were born. Um, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. And we'll be back with another eight minute movies. If, and when we ever decide what other film to do back our Patreon. Um, God, who's our sponsor this week? Audible. Read some audible books. Um, <laughs> how does sponsorship work, Peter? I'm not doing it right. We qu- quip toothbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you invent that one or is that a real? No, that, that's real. Christ alive! Quip. Uh, uh, I should probably stop talking about them bad in case they decide to sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no morals. It's fine. <laughs> uh, goodbye, everyone, and goodbye to you, Peter. Bye bye. <laughs>